Perfect. We're live. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner, where we talk about addiction, mental health, alcoholism, and everything. I'm your host, Mahir Michael Kadarzi, and today we have a very special guest. Welcome to the corner, Pej. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me in my <laughs> own corner. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So let's dive into Pej and, and where are you from and, and tell us about yourself. Okay. So my name is Pejman Brian Alagamandan. Wow. Yeah. Um, I was uh, born in Salt Lake City. I'm sorry. I was born in Germany, West Berlin, actually, when there was a West and an East Berlin, um, 1971. That's where I lived for the first five years of my life. My first language was German. Um, guten Tag. Guten Tag, was master. I didn't even know how to speak Farsi or English uh -huh. until much later in my life, like when I was uh, a little bit older. I've been. To, I, I am Iranian. Both parents are Iranian, so mm -hmm. they had they met there. They had me there and my sister, and then I um, went to Iran when I was like maybe four and a half years old. Six months there, didn't stay. Mom was kind of. Wondering if she wanted to move us to Iran, which I would have been a whole different page probably growing up right, in Iran. Yeah. Or if uh, we wanted to possibly move to America. And then her and my dad made a decision to move over to the United States. And we moved to, of all places in America, Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> which was rough. <laughs> I, bet. I mean, it wasn't really rough. It was good. It was educationally, it was great. Growing up in Utah was great. Um, uh nature's beautiful there skiing all that stuff but like i really felt uncomfortable my uncomfortable in my skin at a very young age because i was a darker skinned uh iranian right. like, persian kid growing up in a very uh predominantly white area mm -hmm. mormon mostly mormons um we were muslim we you know we were Kind of, you know, they, they greeted us with fruit baskets and bread baskets, I think, trying to convert us to their church right, in right. hopes of that. But uh -huh. we weren't interested. And um, although, you know, at a young age, I was involved in going to like seminary. I, I wanted to hang out with my friends. So, like right. I would go to their church and it was it was a Mormon church. Right. Was, but, you know, growing up in Utah, that's where I grew up. And um it was interesting. Very it was a really cool. interesting time. Yeah, like of my life. It was this late, sorry, late seventies, early eighties. Okay. Yeah. And how old were you? I'm assuming you went there for kindergarten, grade school, and then high school, or up until what what age? Or... I started on my very first day of kindergarten. Uh huh. It, it seemed like we just came to this country, and, and kindergarten started right away. <laughs> so pretty much, I started to learn English mm -hmm. within kindergarten. Um, and Farsi, my mom said that in the house we speak Farsi. That's mm -hmm. it, mandatory. We don't speak anything else. So German went out the window. I lived in Utah from kindergarten through all of elementary school, all of half of junior high school. Um, we lived in Salt Lake at first. We moved to Logan, Utah, which one was more boring than the other, right? Uh, but but you know, I, I was I did the, I made the best out of it just growing up in Utah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so when did you decide, or when did your family move from Utah and where did you move next? Well, we moved to California when I was 15. My, my dream was to always live in California. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'd come out to, to vacation out here. Um, we had, uh, cousins that lived in Los Angeles, like Canoga Park, Woodland uh -huh. Hills. So it was my dream to live in California. 
And what was that like hanging out with your family? Then once you came out to California, was that, did that lead to, to other things later on in life? I mean, was that, what do you mean lead to other things like what drug use, drug use, substance use? Yes. Oh no. Substance use started in Utah. Oh, it did. Okay. Tell us about that. Well, from my recollection, I know that my dad was a social drinker um, mm-hmm. with his friends. I believe that, I mean, from what my mom says, like all the way back in Germany when I was a, young, a little tyke, my dad was drinking cognac shots with his friend. Oh. And I supposedly, like, I guess they left some shots that were full on a table and my mom was looking for me and I happened to like come from under the, she said my name. And she, I came from under this table and I basically took both shots and I drank them. So I had my first drink when I was possibly around two or three years old. But that, you know, that was just me being a little little right. kid that was just playing right. around. But I know that growing up in Utah, because I felt uncomfortable in my skin, I started to, I huffed gas, gasoline. I think I huffed glue in school because people said like that will get you high. And I was a curious child. Uh-huh. So um, I huffed gasoline at the age of 12. I was mowing lawns uh-huh. for my uncle. And I remember going back into a shed and grabbing grabbing a gasoline uh, canister and like huffing it. Wow. Because I knew like the fumes would get me high because the fumes of the glue got me high. So I thought like this might even be more powerful, more potent. Very dangerous. It was very dangerous. I mean, I didn't really know, but I, I, I ended up um, huffing for a few weeks and getting tr- really like blasted out of my mind. You go into another dimension when you do that stuff, not to try to like <laughs> turn anyone on into like going out right, and huffing gas, yeah. but kids do it. Like people do yeah. actually do huff gas. So that was like when I first started to experiment with stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a Persian wedding when I was 12 years old and people were drinking and I was really bored there. And I saw like they weren't finishing their drinks. So I went around <laughs> 12 year old, like, st- like took yeah. a little whiff and a little sip. And then I, Ended up like downing all their drinks, and I was the life of the party suddenly. Right. So, so I got totally drunk there. And during that time, because I was an outcast within my school, and there was other people that I went to school with that felt like I felt like just felt uncomfortable in their skin and who they were. I would resort this. There was a Mormon church behind our school where us, you know, delinquents would go back there and uh-huh. go go smoke weed. And so I was turned on to marijuana. At a very young age, you know, I think I remember them calling it Christmas tree buds because they look like buds that were the shape of little trees, right? Wow. So, so I was already starting at the age of twelve, you know, the, pretty much all this other stuff. But you know, bef- the huff, I think the huffing gas, the shots of uh, alcohol were basically the onset of of what would later become like uh, an addictive pattern and behavior of substance use throughout my life. Wow. So we when I when we came to California when I was 15, like all my dreams had been answered because I had been wanting to move to California for so long. My dad must have mm-hmm. thought because he said we're moving to LA and he must have thought that all of California was LA because we didn't move to LA. <laughs> we ended up moving to like Costa Mesa, California, which was great. Uh-huh. I mean, for me it was great cuz anything to get out of that cold miserable state and come to a place where there's palm trees and Disneyland's close by and there's beaches. And right. I just remember like flying over into California as, as a 15 year old looking down. And if you look down, like as you're about to land, you can see people's swimming pools in their backyards. And I, I'd never seen such a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, there's blue pools in all these people's 
backyards. And right. I just thought, this is California. Like, wow. Right. Like uh, to see palm trees to me was like a tropical, like I felt like I was in Hawaii. Right. Yeah. Now I, I see palm trees every day and I don't, I don't think anything of it, let alone, I don't go to the <laughs> beach as much as I would have liked to have. And I, you know, but I remember like getting here and it was my sophomore year. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to Costa Mesa high school. Um, I remember walking into my campus and just looking around and seeing a lot of people looked a lot different than they did in Utah. Mm-hmm. There was different races, creeds, nationalities, uh, blacks, whites, Mexicans, Persians, all different types. And I was like, whoa, like culture shock. Like this is actually like nothing I've ever experienced because I pretty much grew up in white America, you know, in an area where people actually used to say things about my skin color. Some people like my skin color and some people didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like when I lived in Utah because of the people that didn't like my skin color or nationality, I, um, I experienced firsthand like oppression at its finest, like straight. I I got called a lot of names. I believe it. Yeah. I got called a lot of names. I'm talking like sand nigger and uh, many things, you know, dune coon, many things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a guy telling me that his granddaddy owned my granddaddy when I was growing up in Utah. I was (laughs) like, crazy. Like I was thinking we went to the same U S history classes and yeah, you know, that's what a thing to say to somebody. Right. So and I got bullied in Utah too. I got bullied, okay. uh, bullied by some. Actually, somebody pulverized me and and humiliated me in front of the whole school, which it definitely messed with my mental psyche. I mean, to the point where it was a huge resentment I had, and I also felt like everybody in the school just saw this guy. I got my ass handed to me by this dude that had braces in my mouth, and he he beat me up so bad. I mean, he pulverized me. To the point where the braces were caught into my gums, and I mean, it was bad, right? And yeah. and so, and I remember, like after that happened, I I just made this personal vow to myself that I'll I'll never allow a person to harm me or hurt me as much as that guy did. So you know, I was always in fight or flight mode. Plus, mm-hmm. like there was a lot of and within our house. As much as I love my my mom and dad, the, our family unit, the, the way that my dad was, him and my mom were totally different my mom was more nurturing and caring and my dad was more you know he was hot or cold he's when you you knew when he was happy and you knew when he was angry right and when he was angry he was kind of a violent man and when i say violent i don't just mean violent like physically physically was a given right like there's a lot of people say i've never my parents never laid a hand on me are you kidding me my dad laid a hand on me my dad laid other things on me besides just a hand right objects and shit right i won't even go into it but but like um so there was a lot of anger, anger that was a lot of trauma. And it started like with from there. And then we came out here and, um, you know, I, we all, first it was me and my dad that moved to California and then my mom and sister followed suit and they came and we all lived together. And I remember like just growing up in Costa Mesa, it was, it was kind of good times. Yeah. Kind of, you know? Yeah. Was it, was, uh, was it easier for your family to live out here than it was in Utah and, um, everything with your father, did the relationship get better or did it get worse? I mean, drug use, how did that also? It's a great question. So here's what happened. Like we moved to Costa Mesa, California. I, I started as a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. I get a job on Harbor Boulevard, right? It was at McDonald's. Okay. Right? Um, I know that McDonald's. It, it, yeah, right? Right it's, there on uh, Victoria or, or uh, Wilson. Actually the one that's over more by the 405. Okay. And, you know, I'm I was – a young kid on a work permit 
and within my first couple of days of flipping burgers there, there's a dude there named Carlos. He was looking at me and he's like, hey, I say, are you new in town? And I'm like, yeah, I'm new in town. He goes, you smoke weed? I'm like, yeah, I smoke weed. He goes, you drink? I go, absolutely, I drink. Uh-huh. And he said, all right, well, after work, we'll go to this place. If you'd like, we can go, you know, smoke weed and drink. I'm like, no questions asked. Uh-huh. Let's go. So he drove me to this place, and it was this motel at the end of Harbor Boulevard called the Motor Inn, right? Really dingy, shady-looking mm-hmm. spot, right? I where that is, too, yeah. And I was 15, right? <laughs> He's like, sit over here on these stairs, goes up in this room, and I, I got tired of waiting, and finally I went and banged on the door, and, like, the, the door swung open. There was a lady standing there, toothless, looking like uh, <laughs> she's had a baby in her arms. There was wow. a kid playing in the front room, and mm-hmm. – and, um, I'm just like, where's Carlos? And she said, well, he's back in the kitchen. And I couldn't see the kitchen because there were some clothes that were drawn between the front room and the kitchen area. And um, she said, you can go back there and talk to him. And I went back there. And when I walk back there, I see that, like, I walk in and I see a, a mound of some white powdery glistening stuff, uh-huh. which I, I knew I'd seen it in Miami Vice. It was cocaine. Right, right. So it was a big mound of cocaine. This dude's over in the corner doing lines of it, right? And, and like, did you forget about me? He's like, oh, I forgot about you. Like, <laughs> he broke me off real quick. Like, he gave me some weed. He gave me like, uh-huh. a few pulls off of some alcohol that he had. And then, like, I'm thinking, damn, it's late. Like, I got to get home. And I remember running down Victoria Boulevard to where we lived. And, um, you know, like, I thought, how am I going to get in my house without my parents, like, waking up? And I snuck into the house. And when I snuck into the house, like, my parent, my mom was waiting in my bedroom. The lights were off. So she knew. She was waiting. She, wow. Her 15-year-old son is nowhere to be found. Right. And we right. didn't have cell phones and pagers and shit back then. Like, this is the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. So she was just waiting for me, really upset. And that was like, you know, just the start of it, right? Just the start of, like, my mother hovering, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. helicopter mom, right? Right. Making, just wanting to see, like, what's up with her son? Like, why, where, who... We just moved to California. This is already not getting off to a good start. Wow. So the next morning they have a talk with me and it's like this come to Jesus. And they're basically saying like, we moved to the wrong part of town. You need to go to a different school. You need a better education. Um, I ended up like staying in that school for a while, but then we did end up moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> when I went now, now I had to make new friends and, uh, you know, like new school, new friends again. Right. Now I just feel like I went from one school with one set of friends to this school to another set of friends because I did a lot of stuff at that school too, right? Now a whole other school. And mind you, now I'm going into my 16th year of life. Wow. And this is like the golden high school era, right? I started getting into things like I had this friend. His name was Omid. His dad worked in the hotel industry. He was Persian. Omid in our language means hope. There was no motherfucking hope for Omid, <laughs> but Omid had a car and this other boy, my other boy, Amir. And so the three of us, we were just these kids, like just ready to like party all the time. So we would go to like high school parties because Omid had the car. Right, We'd right. stop at liquor stores. We, we knew how to get our liquor. We knew how to get our cigarettes. Um, right. So you're always, you guys were the life of the party, no matter where you went. Yeah. Yeah. We love, awesome. we love partying. Yeah. We, uh, Omid's dad worked late hours in the hotel industry. So. Suddenly, one day, Omid told me that his dad had uh, a jar of cocaine under his bed. I was like, what? what the fuck? Like this, you know, I remember thinking like in elf class, they taught us 
mm-hmm. that if you ever did cocaine, one line could get you addicted. And mm-hmm. and I was like, this is do or die right now. Like it was right in front of me. Uh-huh. And I thought, do you do it? Do you not do it? You could get addicted. Let's do it. Right. Like, and I did it and automatically, immediately I was addicted. Wow. I, everything from the flavor, the taste, the way it made me feel, I was like, oh my God. So what, what do you think drives your desire to want to try or at the time to try new drugs? You know, it sounds Cur- like you've been curiosity. Uh huh. For one, I think within the house, there was a lot of turmoil. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very tumultuous environment the, between dad yelling a lot of times and, you know, mom and dad not really. I mean, they got along, but they didn't get along when they didn't get along like we we knew that. So for me, it was a great escape. I wanted to basically try to go and have fun. I had more fun with my friends outside of the house than I did. I was an adolescent. This yeah. was a phase. It could have been seen as a phase, right? Most definitely. But I was already trying heavy drugs because when we were doing cocaine, it turned into straight up rocking it up and freebasing. Like that's what. That's hardcore. That's hardcore. It's not normal for two 16 year old kids in, in Orange County, like to be messed up on crack, <laughs> yeah. right? On straight up crack. And, and so. Did I think I was going to become a full blown addict? No. I was just living in the moment, having fun, right? We were partying. We were going to nightclubs on fake IDs. We were going out of Mexico. It wasn't that hard. Like you could go over the border and get back in. You didn't have to have a passport, none of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, we were partying a lot. And, my, and mind you, during that time too, like the Grateful Dead were still around. They were coming in town and playing. So we were doing uh, hallucinogens, acid, mushrooms, oh. all that stuff. Um, then it, when I turned 17, something happened. It was a very traumatic day. I was, uh, I had finally gotten my driver's license. I, it was about a day, six days, seven days into my senior year. My dad gave me his uh, hand-me-down car. I had, I told all, I was so happy to pick up my friends. I called them all. I said, I'm going to come pick you guys up today rather than you guys pick me up. Mm-hmm. I got this brand new car. It's not brand new, but like it was new for me, right? A new driving experience. Just got my license, and I picked up one by one each person. It was a 71 Super Beetle Yellow Bug Volkswagen. Bug. Wow. And picking up, like, and I had my sister in the car. My, I picked up my girlfriend. So there's six of us in a, in a little bug. Right, yeah. Piled in there, right? I mean, in the back seat, like three and one sitting on someone's lap. And I don't even. I, I didn't even get loaded that morning. I was pretty much hungover from the night before because I did party pretty hard the night before. But I'm driving to school with all of them. The music's blaring. Windows are rolled down. We're just a bunch of high school kids having fun. And you could smell the lemon trees in the air. I remember like Brian Adams was playing on the radio, right? <laughs> just a bunch of kids having fun. Summer of 69. That's what they were playing, right? We're driving up the street. And uh, out of nowhere, before I get to the intersection... This 14-year-old kid darts out in the street on his bicycle that was going to an, a different school than ours. It was a different high school. We were on our way to one high school. He was riding his bike to his school. He got out in the middle of the street so fast, and I couldn't hit the brakes fast enough. And this kid, both his bike and his body, went over the hood of my car into the windshield, and the windshield shattered. Wow. 
and the car kept rolling and crashed into a minivan in the intersection. And this kid's body was flung over the minivan headfirst into the ground. It's tragic. I'm sorry. And I, I just, I got out of the car and it felt like everything just went into slow motion. I looked around. I thought to myself, did I just hit a human body? Did that just happen? And then I looked at my friends in my car and they, I mean, they, it was a total like major wreckage, right? Like you see blood coming down from their faces, some of their faces because of the broken windshield. Mm -hmm. I had blood coming down from my face. I could like taste the blood and broken glass in my mouth from the windshield. And I, and I thought, oh my God, I went and looked around the side of the minivan and saw the kid laying face down with blood gushing out of the top of his head. And I thought, I'm in fucking big trouble. Like, I'm going to jail for this. I'm going to jail for this. Like, what, what's going to happen? And then the ambulance came and the police came and the ambulance whizzed the kid off to the hospital. The cops took me down to this police station and they interrogated me. They asked me a bunch of questions. Um, they wanted to see if I was under the influence. They did some tests and they, they let me go. And I just remember, like, the kid didn't die right away. He, his mom put him on life support and about four days later she took him off of life support because he would have been complete vegetable, you know, as a result of extensive brain damage from hitting the, the asphalt. So, you know, here I am, this 17-year-old kid with this huge, like the biggest trauma somebody could ever encounter in their life, right? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, what? Like, why me? Like, why did this happen to have to me? It had to happen to me. Of all the kids in our entire student body, like I'm singled out by whatever, whoever's up there, you did this to me? And I, it just turned me into an, like a really rebellious young man. Like I just, I started fighting people. I started getting in arguments with people. There's people that would come up to me and be like, aren't you the kid that killed that kid on his bicycle? And be like, fuck you. Like, really? You're going to say that I killed the kid? It was an accident. I didn't intentionally go out and kill him. You got a problem with me? And the next thing you know, I'd throw down with these dudes. It was a couple of them. And mind you, I'm under the influence. So I'm like getting into, I was doing acid in school, doing mushrooms in school. Um, I got actually asked to leave my high school to go over to the continuation school. Right, yeah. And then now, now I'm hanging around total degen degenerates just yeah. doing like, you know. Did you build a reputation for yourself? I mean, I, the reputation was basically like this guy's, he's a misfit. Like he's just, you know, a nuisance. Like I would go back to my high school. The school narc would chase me off the grounds. Wow. Um, I ended up getting arrested while on acid one day by the police that took me in the back. I'm in the backseat of the fucking black and white and I start peeking on acid and they take me and put me in a holding cell for six hours where I'm just frying balls, you know, with a camera in the corner trying like, and I'm trying to play it off. Like not, just, it was a shit show. And on top of that, my dad picked me up afterwards later that day. And here I am like coming down off acid with the anger and rage of my father. Come, just, it was, you know, and finally, like I got into so much trouble that I found my way into juvenile court about probably four months later after the accident. Mm -hmm. So you're still 17. I'm this, still 17. This point. Like in my, yeah, it was around this like June or January of that year. Mm -hmm. And this judge tells me, Mr. Algamana, we don't see you fit to be on the streets. You're a complete menace to society. You've accumulated all of these crimes in the last few months. And on top of that, you have a vehicular manslaughter charge without gross negligence. Now think about like the word manslaughter being attached to your name and being charged with that, right? 
the without no gross negligence part is because I wasn't under the influence. Yeah. If I had been drinking or using that day, it would have been with gross negligence, right? Would, so, would you have been put in jail? Would you have been sentenced if that was the case? Well, because I, because of that charge and the other charges, I did get sentenced. They were going to send me to juvie for one year. Wow. And I walked into boys receiving in, in Orange County um, Juvenile Hall. I saw a guy that was a friend of mine, you know, that had gotten in trouble too. He was actually in there and mm -hmm. he would, he worked in there. Like he, he'd been locked up so many times, like they let him be a worker. So he would put like magazines and books, like he was underneath my cell door. I was in major fear. Um, they transferred me to a unit in there because I had a complete meltdown. Um, and because of the charge that I had, uh, where I was, a it was the psych portion. Like there was basically a lot of crazies. Mm -hmm. There were kids that had, some had murdered their family members. Some had murdered other people. Um, there was death attached to all of their crimes. And so now I'm amongst these people. And some of them were just shot out. They were just mental cases, right? Mm -hmm. So I was experiencing mental health at a very young age, which is not good for my mental health. And um, I experienced major depressive disorder. A lot of anxiety. I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. I didn't get to see the light of day for many days, like 60 some odd days. I, I didn't get to go out and feel the morning air. And I was pretty much just, I checked out. Like I was out of the game. I'm sitting there in my cell and I would just read and read and read. And um, my psychologist would come visit me. Uh, my parents would come visit me. And uh, after a while, my mom did enough footwork on the outs to get petitions um, from local area, you know, schools and people and teachers and family members and neighbors and everybody to basically say like, this is all kinds of wrong. Like he shouldn't be incarcerated. And, right. and, um, in that time, my parents were going through a divorce. And finally, when I did get released, I tried to go between their homes. I would go to my mother's house. They got separated and we would have it out and I'd go to my dad's. And I was just this angry, violent, defiant, combative young man. And so um, you couldn't talk to me, you know, you just couldn't talk to me. And I'd get into it with the people and especially with my family members. And it finally happened. One day I was at my dad's house and with all the violence I encountered from him throughout my life, finally, I, I didn't put up for it. I was, I was 18 years old and I didn't put up with it. I, I basically attacked him. I attacked him physically. And um, he, I think it scared the shit out of him because the next day he sat me down and said that he's moving away. And he said that I can, I'm 18 years old now I'm of age and I could just go ahead and take care of myself and take over the apartment. And my mom moved up to Santa Monica and here I was this 18 year old kid still wet behind the ears with no, no home training, no guidance from a male figure. And I, I did what I knew how to do best. And that was uh, based off of the music. I liked everything from reggae to rap. Mm -hmm. Um, I started to sell drugs. I tried to work in the workplace for a while, but that didn't pay the bills. Right. Never did. <laughs> it didn't pay the bills because I had an addiction, a full-blown addiction now that I was trying to nurture. So I did what I knew how to do best. Somebody told me, you want to you do drugs? Sell drugs. Right. Wow. And um, Now, was there any, any stage in your life when there was any type of intervention? 
No, I think I think I do remember like being younger and my mother would sometimes drug test me or, you know, but that was, it wasn't even that. That's, that's what I think. I mean, other than that, like nobody really intervened. My mom tried to intervene a few times, obviously, like she read my diary. There uh-huh. was times that she'd sit me down and try to have that conversation of you're so talented, you have so much potential. Why are you doing this to yourself? But like, I would always minimize it. I would always make them seem like they don't know what they're talking about or I'm mm. not so bad or what. So you played it off really well. I played it off. I lived a double and triple and quadruple wow. life. That is you know? crazy. But um, yeah, I mean, like from the time I was probably 18 years old, um, selling drugs was a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It was just what I did. You know, I didn't work. Right. I didn't want to work. I didn't have to work. I, for a while, I stayed at people's houses selling drugs and saved money, and they would let me stay there until they wouldn't let me stay there. Right. And then finally, I started getting my own place. Then I started getting my own places. I had safe houses. I was selling lots of drugs, like lots. And this was the 90s, so we didn't have people that were overdosing on fentanyl, right, like in five minutes. (laughs) If it was around, I would have been selling it, I'm sure, right? Because I sold everything. I was like your average everyday drugstore cowboy. Right. Right. Like I I had um the raves were really big during that time. Raves were starting to pop off in the late eighties. I remember being like at some of the good ones, eighty eight, eighty nine, like we would go to these after hours clubs mm-hmm. in LA where they were either in a club or they were in some warehouse that was rent rented out or somebody had a warehouse and set it up and it was all illegal. I mean, like, and pills were definitely um, being distributed to us. We were using them. Ecstasy was a friend of mine for a <laughs> long time. I would uh, hippie flip, candy flip. I would mix. I would do uh, acid with ecstasy. I would do, I started getting into lots of cocaine because I was Persian and all my Persian friends did it. Wow. It was like the rich man's, you know, drug. And then, right. and then later on I resorted to getting into methamphetamine. And oh, yeah. there was people that were, I also had, I suffered from body dysmorphia. Started doing steroids at a very young age, probably like 16, 17. And then wow. later on into my twenties. So on the outside, I thought if I did the roids, they made me look better. But then when I would like end the cycle, I would eat like because I loved weed. So mm-hmm. I would eat a lot and I'd start to get fat. I've always had this yo-yo body like uh-huh. where I could get really overweight or I could like get really sucked up. So I would see people around me that were doing meth and I thought, whoa, look at them. They just shed a bunch of pounds like they, they look all sucked up and I'm starting to turn into a fat ass. Why don't I start to do some meth and – so right. I did meth. I did that at an early age, like probably 18, 19 years old. I did meth for about three or four years, snorting it. I started seeing a lot of the people that I was hanging out with that were my um, adolescent friends that were getting into meth heavily that turned into different people. Mm-hmm. Evil-like. I'm talking like demonic. I would look in their eyes and I would see the devil, right? And um, so my parents were way out of my life at this point. I would barely go see my mom because I knew if, she, if I saw her, she knew I was fucked up. And my dad lived all the way in Iran, and I was angry with him. He, like, pretty much abandoned me. So as much as I didn't like thinking I had an abandonment issues, I had major abandonment issues. So um, 
I tried quitting meth when I was 22, 23 years old. I actually did quit, right? I was only snorting it. It was crank back then. I wasn't like getting into heavier meth use, but I had this like, I got to a point where I was like, I don't want to do meth anymore. I don't like it. I wouldn't even allow people to come to my apartment that did meth. Um, but I did all the other drugs. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to raves. I started uh, partying in raves regularly. And then um, I was always artistic. So I created stuff. And I started to create a, um, a bunch of artwork. And I wanted to make t-shirts so i started making t-shirts and then eventually um i made other things like snowboards skateboards mm -hmm. uh, many different types of boards with this logo that we built and then after that we i came up with a bunch of ideas and this stuff like started to sell in stores wow that's cool that's a cool outlet yeah so like mid 90s in my mid 20s mm -hmm. i took my artistic talent to the next level. I got a bunch of people that would fund a bunch of money from drug sales. Uh -huh. And me, myself, I would fund a bunch of money from drug sales. And we created this company and the company took off. And like, it was doing quite well for itself. It was like, uh, I had no business sense, but like I, so here I am, this, this hardcore drug addict who creates a clothing line that then became many different types of mm -hmm. You know, we had all different types of things, all the stuff I named on top of that, a men's line, a women's line. And we, we had a catalog and we were selling our stuff nationally and going to trade shows and everything. And, and I'm just fucked off. Like, I, right. like for the next five years, my, my partners and my cousin that was one of my partners too, were, they just watched me like kind of just fuck it all up. Mm -hmm. And my ego was so big. I was like, fuck these guys. Like, I don't need you. I created this. My grandfather, I'm the grandfather of this whole thing. You guys should be listening to me. Right. And um, it got to the point where they all backed away from me. I did a good job of tanking the business. And um, into my late 20s, like, my addiction was really, really bad. I'm talking like it started catching up to me. You know, I started creating a lot of wreckage for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So... How and when did you decide to get sober? Well, I'll say this. Like, I started getting into uh, some trouble, like, in my later 20s. We started doing home invasions. Um, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I got caught up with a bunch of people that were members of hardcore gang, like a hardcore gang that, to me, because of my... I wanted to protect my myself and also protect the drugs I was selling. So I got linked up with some people that were, I looked at them as protection, right? Um, and if anybody double crossed me, like we would go after them and do things to them. And, um, Egg their house? No. <laughs> I'm talking, we would orchestrate like full on home invasions and wow. stuff that I could have been in prison for. Um, but that didn't change me, although a lot of them got in trouble. By the time I was in my later 20s, almost 30, I started manufacturing methamphetamine. And I got in trouble, uh, raided by the methamphetamine task force. They came in riot gear. They took me to jail. I went to jail, and I remember being in there and thinking, 
I would sleep it off, but I remember people would come and bring a message of hope in there. This happened in juvie too. Mm-hmm. People from the recovery community would come and like share their stories with us. So I was a seed was planted when I was 17 and I would hear their stories, but it was a, a weak seed, but a seed nonetheless. And then when I was 30 and I was incarcerated, more people would come and bring messages and like that seed was getting watered, right? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't quite ready to get sober yet. But I remembered that those people stayed sober. From the time I was 30, I remember at the age of 30, I got out of jail. My mom wasn't going to rescue me. I went to a Persian sober living. I didn't like the guy. I wanted nothing to do with him. I went to another dude sober living. God rest his soul. His name was Dave Regal. I lived at his house. I had to go to meetings begrudgingly <laughs> there were 12-step meetings uh-huh. i would sit in these meetings i didn't want to identify i would just call myself brian brian <laughs> my middle name my high school name and um i was like mr contempt prior to investigation i just sit there with my arms crossed i didn't want to share i wouldn't share i'd look at people i'd take their inventory i'd be like these people are a bunch of peasants and you had to go to these meetings i had to go because we were in his sober living and he just said like you need to go to a meeting every single day okay right wow. He actually told me, like, the first day I walked into his house, he's like, did you just get out of the jailhouse? I go, yeah, I did. He goes, you keep your jailhouse mentality in the jailhouse. <laughs> when you're in my house, you, it's about recovery. You go to meetings. Uh-huh. I'm like, okay. Now I'm, cool. sent, now I'm sentenced to AA by the, this guy, Dave Regal. Mm-hmm. God rest his soul, he's no longer with us. But the dude was like a spray shooter. So I'd go to these meetings, and I did everything I could to work my way out of there. And one day my friend, Gurpreet, who is also in recovery? He uh, now he is. He just he told me you don't need to go to the meetings. You could sign your own court card, and nobody needs to know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so I didn't go. Uh-huh. S- stayed in sober living for a little while to to make the lawyer and the judges and my mother happy. Worked my way into being able to live at my mom's house. Now I'm in my 30s, right? Mm-hmm. Moved into my mom's house and um. Getting high, low key, on probation, learning how to pit, fake tests, everything, right? Very clever, if you will. My own worst enemy. Once I got off of probation, I was a heavy drug user again. So by the time I was about 32 years old, try to go to the art institute to because I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. Two different times I got put on academic probation, and then finally they just kicked me out of school because I was always high. Like I was blasted, blasted, heroin, meth, cocaine. These were a few of my favorite things, right? I couldn't perform in school. It was overwhelmed. So I ended up tanking my opportunity to go to school. I was going to, I was studying interactive multimedia design. I was going to become a web designer and do a lot of things. I like ruined that whole opportunity, right? And um, between uh, 35 and 30, oh, my, when I was 35 years old, I was a homeless man living out of my car. I had nothing going for me. Um, I still kind of felt like I had it going on because I wasn't like homeless people that live in tents or on the street. I still have my car. Like I'm executive homeless. Right? <laughs> my ego was so big, like so grandiose. And I ended up uh, going to 
somebody's house and drying out on his couch for about nine days of de like detoxing myself. But my version of detox was to quit doing heavy drugs, but still smoke weed and drink. That's not really detoxing because mm -hmm. you're still getting loaded. But I remember in the back of my head that people in recovery in those rooms before used to talk about sobriety and how good their lives got. So I did what every so-called gangster does when they run out of options. I called my mommy uh -huh. and, um, she wasn't happy to hear from me. You know, I know that she was probably melting on the inside because there's times when that poor lady would be praying on her knees and crying for God not to let me die. Right. Yeah. You know, I'd been in, you know, she'd come visit me in, in, in jails. And um, finally, she, um, she just gave me this phone number and told me to go to this place. It was a. Uh, it was this place that was, I, I didn't know what I was in for. I actually called a man that sent me to this place. And when I went there, um, the man that opened the door was this little Persian guy that I'd met at a Persian sober living when I was 30. Mm -hmm. Now I'm 35, almost 36 years old. And I looked him in his eyes. I go, I know you. And he goes, well, I don't know you. I'm like, how do you not remember me? Uh -huh. I, I was in your house five years ago. Because you were in my house? I go, yeah, I came and checked it out. I left. He's like, well, I would never remember you. Like, you, right. you didn't stay. The only ones I remember the people that stayed, other ones that can come and go. And um, I didn't know what I was in for. But that man, I needed him in my life. It was as if God presented an angel to me. He was Persian. He was a man of recovery. He was an ex-heroin addict wow. that tried to kick 19 different times. He tried to kick and quit. And couldn't do it. He was an ex-bank robber, which I really loved. Yeah, right. Especially because <laughs> he got away with everything. Right, yeah. So I was like, criminal, <laughs> addict, man of recovery, straight shooter, no bullshit, no yeah, sugarcoating. I loved him. <laughs> and he said, um, come on in. And we did the intake process. And this guy's talking about like a six-month to a one-year program. And I'm thinking like, that's a little bit excessive. How about... A month. Uh huh. We start with that. This man pretty much turned me inside out. He he broke me down, basically chiseled away at my ego, mm -hmm. and uh, built me up. He put a mirror in front of me, you know, in metaphoric terms, like right. to yeah. basically show me like how much of a facade I was living. Mm -hmm. He did a psychodrama on me, which uh, it was a family group full of Iranian people. It was it was an Iranian treatment center if you will and um he had all these families sitting in the circle my mother wouldn't visit me the whole time i was there until that night and she came there and my you know she was sitting there and they basically took this 12 year old kid that was one of the client's kids and laid him on the ground and put a sheet over his body a bed sheet wow. and he had me walk around the room and he dimmed the lights to give it like this like an ambiance like a, like a nice calm aura mm -hmm. and he sat on the ground and started asking questions about that day the car accident and he went deep i mean like i he said so what what was what song was playing on the radio mm -hmm. a lot of intimate details a lot of intimate details i said it had rained the night before the streets were slick i couldn't hit the brakes fast enough i hit the kid and then I didn't know why the guy was laying under the blanket, under the, the sheet. Mm -hmm. But finally he got, got me to a point where as I'm talking, I'm just bawling my, like, just 
tears were just pouring down my face. I could fill buckets with tears. I was crying so hard. I got, the whole room was crying. It was just a bunch of Persians. Like yeah, everyone was just crying together, right? And he said, now come over here and put your hand on top of this. This is this represents the corpse of the kid that you hit. Wow. What was his name? And I said, his name was David. And he said, you tell David how you feel about him losing his life. And I, I was just, at this point, I'm like, come on, dude. Why are you doing this to me? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I never intended for you to lose your life. And then he said, okay, so what about your life? What happened to your life? And I said, my life? I don't have a life. I don't know what having a life is like. He said, all right, so what do you want to do? You want to make some changes? You want to make a commitment, Pesh? I said, yes, I want to make a commitment. He goes, what's your commitment? And I said, I want to help every single addict, alcoholic of every age, race, creed, and color one day at a time for the rest of my life. And I did a double take. I was like, did that just come out of my mouth? Like, I don't even talk like that. Like, where did that come? It was as if God was speaking through me. I was in the rooms of recovery so much to where it was starting to, like, transmit to me yeah to the point where like now it was like flowing in and through me god's power couldn't have been more present in my life than on that particular night my my sponsor was there this persian dude great guy he was there too everyone in the room was in tears i didn't know what i was in for but it was such a powerful moment and experience the psychodrama i'd never heard of such a thing it's a great therapeutic practice that once i got out of it, the next day I woke up, I felt like a thousand pounds was lifted off my back. All my reservations of still wanting to get high, out the window. Wow. Absolute turning point. I made a decision that next day, no more fucking around. I'm only going to go forward. I never want to look back. I never want to go back. I don't want to go back and use. I, I, that's, that's out of the question. No more. Like, I just want to go forward. I want to help people. How do I do this thing? So I'd get with my sponsor i go to meetings. I started working steps. That was wonderful. I was seeing a psychologist. That was necessary. And over a period of time, the psychologist told me after like six sessions, you're doing such a good job and you're doing so well in your recovery, I'd be ripping you off to continue seeing you. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, wow, what a good, honest guy. Like he could have like charged us forever. Right, right, right. right um, yeah. I did some family therapy with him. I did family therapy with my dad and um, it didn't work out well with the psychologist. But when we went to an anger man- management specialist, that helped both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, thus my, my, my life of recovery took off. I was that seed that had been planted when I was 17 and watered when I was 30 was in full bloom. I was ready to arise. I was ready to flourish. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so what ended up happening, I, I went back to school and I, I, I excelled in all of my classes. I went to basically to the human services uh, department at Saddleback Valley College. I um, studied drug and alcohol studies, uh, got to learn everything I used about and all the different ways that it affected me. And and then, you know, I was really active in the place I got sober in. I was doing groups there. I really loved group facilitation. I learned that in school too. And I started working in different facilities. I worked in an adolescent facility with with little mini pejas, little addicts uh-huh, and uh-huh. alcoholics that reminded me of myself. And then I started working in adult treatment with a lot of adults that act like adolescents, right? <laughs> um, or children for that matter. But right. it was cool because I, I just got to experience life in a whole different way, a, like a second life. A second life, you know, was granted to me. I was blessed. Amen. Amen to that, brother. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, every, every time uh, we work together and, and so what I do is I shoot videos for Pej, TikTok videos, YouTube videos, and, and it's a very heartwarming story every time I, I listen and I learn. I learn something new from you every time we're together. And it's honestly I actually me. learn a lot from you too every time we're together. <laughs> so I'm I'm grateful that you that you've come came into my life and Likewise. Uh, you know you've touched the hearts and lives of so many people out there, you know, and uh, I for one appreciate that and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there watching that that can uh, feel the same way as well, you yeah. know. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for being on Peja's Recovery Corner. And, uh, you know, it's it's an honor to to be the host today. And uh, I look forward to, to more videos and, and, uh, and working with you. Thank so. you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you guys, everybody that tuned in. Love you all very much. Have a good rest of your day. Bye.